Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines' seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichore and Sneakers, Terpsichore magazine is a platform celebrating female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion, curated by me, dance critic and writer Emily May. Terpsichore aims to spotlight female contributions to the world of dance, an art form that is often perceived as female-dominated, but that in fact rarely encourages women towards positions of power. Posting information, images and videos of female dance pioneers, both past and present, on a daily basis on our Instagram account, Terpsichore is now starting its very own podcast, where I will be interviewing leading women from the dance industry about their lives, careers and the female artists that have inspired them. I'm delighted that for this inaugural episode, my first guest to the podcast will be Paris-based sociologist and journalist Laura Capel, who writes about theatre and dance for The Guardian, The Financial Times, The New York Times and The Dancing Times. Having attained her PhD in sociology last year from the New Sorbonne University, she's recently edited her first book, A New History of Dance in the West, From Prehistory to the Present Day. Well, hello, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us today for the first Terpsichore podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. So to kick off with our questions, I wanted to start off really at the very beginning and ask you about what your first experience with dance was or how you became interested in the art form in the first place. So see, I'm usually the one asking those questions, so now I need to think about it. Um, that's a good question. I started uh, ballet classes when I was very young. I think it was I was four or five years old. Um, and I asked my mother once, but I think no one in my family can remember uh, how it started. Uh, I asked her if she put me up to it. or And she just said, no, you just kept asking for classes and for, for, for dance classes specifically. Um, so we took you. Um, and it became a passion of mine. Um, I took ballet classes for all the way until I was 18 years old and also some contemporary classes and just what we call here in France modern jazz, which doesn't really mean much, <laughs> is a sort of mix of contemporary and, and modern dance, um, if you will. Um, and I think it was it, it became a part of my life. I just couldn't couldn't live without it, not in the sense that I was thinking about writing about it. Uh, but yes, I was a very devoted amateur dancer at the time. And what about as well as dancing yourself, what were some of the first performances you remember seeing or being really inspired by? I remember I was obsessed with the Paris Opera Ballet's DVDs uh, because of course we didn't have YouTube at the time. Uh, now you can see much more, but at the time I used to, to hunt with my mother for DVDs from the Paris Opera and I remember one of my favorite was uh, La Bayadère, the Rudolf Nureyev production that was um, filmed, I think, around 1995, I want to say. It stars Isabelle Guérin, um, Elisabeth Platel as Gamzati as well. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful recording. It's, it's a lovely production that they still dance to this day. And I think I was, yes, obsessed with it. I think I, I can replay in my mind entire sections of it and I would keep watching it over and over again. I was fascinating with the, um, the entrance of the shades, uh, which is a, such a memorable scene in, in the ballet repertoire and one that meant a lot to me from, from that time on, onwards. Amazing. And then so you said initially you weren't thinking about writing about dance. How did that transition come or when did you start thinking of it as something that you could use for uh, an inspiration for writing or a career? 
I don't think I knew that people wrote about dance so, so, or that it could be a career uh, for a long time. Um, and it started when I went to university um, and I had had a couple of injuries towards the end of my, not at all career, but you know, <laughs> of my time uh, dancing and doing ballet. Um, so I wasn't dancing so much anymore, uh, but I was very, very devoted to the art film still. And I would go to, I moved to Paris actually for university. Um, so I would go to as many performances as I could get to at the Paris Opera. I would buy cheap tickets and stand at the back of the boxes that are um, around the theater there um, to see different casts and to finally have access to, to live ballet performances on the, not daily basis, but, you know, on the regular basis. Um, and I think around that time, there were also a number of, uh, discussion boards online that were getting more and more traction. Um, that was something around the mid 2000s, um, like ballet co forum, or in French, Dansomanie. Um, and I started writing on those discussion boards more as a way of connecting, I think, with other people who love the art form. I uh, started writing, and including in English, because I had learned English from a very young age and I loved writing in English. So it was kind of like a fun way of, um, eh, I don't know, a fun way of, of connecting with, other, with more people, let's say. Uh, so I started writing about the performances that I saw and just contributing here and there. Um, and that's actually how it started, because after a couple of years, I moved to Lyon for my studies. Um, and when I was there, I was asked by uh, some discuss by a discussion board that was also a website if I would be interested in contributing reviews from Lyon, because they didn't have anyone writing about them from Lyon. And I think around the same time, or perhaps slightly earlier than that, I also, through uh, someone I knew, got an email from Point Magazine in the US um, asking, because I'd been writing in English about the Paris Opera and not many people uh, were able to or could see the performances, asking me if I would review a performance for them, uh, for the magazine, which was very, very exciting. Uh, that's essentially how it all started, and it sort of snowballed into more and more writing as I got to know well websites but website administrators I mean um, and also magazine editors and realizing that I really enjoyed it and that perhaps I'd like to do more of it <laughs> which was a long process let's say. You mentioned they're specifically reviewing but you also I've seen do lots of features and interviews as well as reviewing. Do you have a preference between reviewing and interviewing or how is it different? How do you approach it differently as a writer? I don't think I have a preference. Um, I'm trying to think. I, they're very, very different ways of writing, uh, but I think I enjoy both um, in the sense that reviewing is trying to capture what you saw for a larger audience and hopefully recording some of what you experienced in the theater and that in itself I think is also very important for the art form um, in terms of archive, just archival uh, material um, and then interviews well they can be terrifying <laughs> occasionally or at least they were when I started um, and at the same time I really enjoy it depends who you meet uh, but I really enjoy get trying to figure out uh, how someone thinks uh, what their approaches uh, of the art form um, and try to have an actual conversation, not just asking them 
um, the questions that I have on a piece of paper, usually I ditch the piece of paper and I just try and have a conversation <laughs> with that person. Um, and that can be fascinating. It's it's like a paid opportunity to ask the questions you've always wanted to ask to other people. I really enjoy that, I have to say, as an introvert as well. <laughs> Amazing. And maybe not favorites, but are there any choreographers that you've met or interviewed that have really made a long-lasting impression on you or that really stand out for you? Gosh, I mean, um, probably first and foremost, William Forsythe. Um, I was genuinely terrified when when I first interviewed him, um, and yet he was extremely kind. I thought he would give me 15 minutes and then be on his way. Um, and actually, we met and said, well, I'm hungry. Do you want to go to lunch? <laughs> and we just, I had lunch with William Forsythe that day, and that, that was a, a few years back. And it just felt completely surreal that he would actually want to spend time with a young writer um, at at this stage in his career, he doesn't need to, and yet he was very kind and very uh, engaged uh, when I asked him when I asked him questions. Um, and you can see that it's someone who thinks very very deeply about dance and about everything that he does. Um, he can have a, a cerebral side to him, um, and I enjoy that because you can see his his mind in action when you when you have a conversation with him and also on how much experience he relies to build his ballets he can so he can go on and on about say the construction of paquita uh which is it's it's wonderful i think many scholars have that ability but i think not all choreographers are necessarily interested in that and um it really feeds into his work, in my opinion, and that's actually why uh, we asked him to write a foreword for the book that I just um, published, uh, A New Dance History, uh, or New History of Dance in the West. Um, and I thought, who better uh, to bridge um, the what is sometimes a gap between scholars and artists and try and, and explain uh, why it matters so much to think and write about history. Um, and he was very, very kind to agree. Uh, but there were many other standouts. I mean, I, I mentioned William Forsythe, but um, who else has been? A lot of people were very, very special. From what I can remember recently is Una um, Doherty uh, from Northern Ireland, who is a thrill to, to speak to. She is just very, very honest, uh, very unfiltered. And I think you get to meet a lot of people as a journalist who are media trained and who already have a narrative. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but who already have a narrative um, that they have figured out um, of their life and of their career trajectory. Um, and it's always refreshing and a joy to meet someone who is working it out as they as they go um, in her case and who is going to be very blunt <laughs> if perhaps she finds a question silly or if she doesn't know how to answer um that can i mean that can be a little it can take you aback uh and at the same time it's it, it leads to different conversations let's say 
I, I th- remember reading that piece you wrote about Una, and I think it was in The Guardian. And um, what I really enjoyed about that as well, and I think it's really interesting in terms of writing interviews, is that even if you use very few quotes, there's all this thing you can do in your own like writing voice to capture the essence of someone or capture what those exchanges are like, which I think is all the more interesting when you say it's a situation that is maybe a bit more surprising or unexpected or um, off the cuff than someone who's extremely trained for interviews in the media. Yeah, that's what you try to do and... and... I mean, that's the, the pressure as well. I think it, it is a, it's a responsibility to, to try and capture someone's way of being almost, of someone's um, qualities in, in your own writing. Um, I suppose the goal is always to do that person justice, regardless of what, what they're like. Um, and yes, you, you try. I don't know if we, if we always succeed as writers, but I think the goal is to at least give the person the benefit of the doubt and try and understand where they're coming from um, in their thought process and in their creative process as well, which is different from reviewing where you, you're writing about a finished product in the sense of what you hope is a finished product. I'm interested as well about how you perceive the relationship between artists and critics or writers, because traditionally there's this kind of war between the writer and the artist. But do you think that this is evolving in terms of and how, yeah, how do you perceive this relationship? It's a really complex discussion, and I think uh, that relationship is probably shifting as the conditions uh, of working as a critic or as a reviewer change. Um, I think for a time, at least, um, critics who enjoyed, say, full-time positions with newspapers or at least um, steady um, income, perhaps um, could stand slightly further apart from artists and and try and and be an objective no one is objective but you know what i mean uh try and be an objective observer of what they saw on stage um and nowadays that's also changing because um if you're a freelancer for instance uh your income might also come from from other uh, sources such as writing for writing program notes or working with companies on say Q&A sessions, that type, that type of work. And that does change your relationship with artists. And it depends on the person. I think some, some reviewers, some critics are um, by nature people who want to have more discussions with artists and who want to understand the process behind the work. Um, I don't always find that useful in the sense that I also like coming to a work without knowing much about what went into it and try and see it for what it is as a production in itself. That's the structuralist in me. <laughs> it's the French. <laughs> it's my French literary <laughs> studies that, that are coming back to me. Um, because that's also, in my opinion, that's also what the audience sees. You can provide a lot of context, but a lot of people come to the theater and they want to be able to grasp what is happening on stage and to relate to it without having to do a huge amount of work beforehand or at least i think so some people might enjoy it but not everyone has the time so as a critic i think sometimes it can be interesting to come to a work from that perspective and if you're close with artists it becomes harder to do that because you know what went into it and you come to it with say a certain affection already for the person uh, who, for the people um, who made the work. So it's very, it's it's a very complex question, and I think we're all trying as as critics and writers trying to navigate how to how this 
the current situation and how to relate to artists without losing your independence as a writer um, because you don't want to be seen as the mouthpiece for an organization or for a company. I don't think that's our job um, to do that. Yeah, I now wanted to move on to one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was as well because you've recently edited a new book, which you just mentioned, uh, titled A New History of Dance in the West. And I wondered if you could tell me how this project came about. Um, yes, of course. So we started working on this book about, I want to say three years ago. Um, it came, the project really came from a, a wonderful editor um, with the publishing house that we worked with, uh, which is a um, fairly prestigious house in France called Le Seuil. Um, and this particular editor um, is a ballet domain, uh, a dance fan, uh, also a musicologist and someone who is very, very highly trained and who has edited many books within the humanities. And she knew that there just weren't many books being published about dance, or at least not enough for what the field um, was putting out otherwise in, term, in terms of work. So she came to me because she knew that I was also working as a scholar and, and working on my PhD at the time. And she asked me what I thought was needed um, in terms of, of publishing. We discussed many ideas uh, during that, that lunch that we had. Um, and I think one that it became quite clear would be important to focus on was a sort of an introduction to dance history, because there hadn't been one in France in more than 25 years, a wide ranging one. Um, and I knew that the scholarship had changed in that time, had evolved, and I had taught dance history um, at university in Paris a few years back. So I had that experience of looking for books to recommend to students who, they weren't dance students, so they didn't know much, and to just look for books to give them as a way into um, that field. Um, and realizing at that time that actually there just weren't many options. Um, you would have to perhaps recommend um, an older book and then essentially preface that with uh, recommendations for scholarly articles that would provide nuance as to what they were reading. And that's not what you want for students coming to dance history. That's not what you want also for uh, people who just want the, the basics. Uh, of dance history. Um, and so she was on board with that idea from the start and said, well, can you put together a proposal for me? So that's how <laughs> that's how I ended up um, working on, on that book, which was um, a wonderful and slightly crazy adventure. Amazing. And you mentioned there, obviously, it was to have this kind of concise, all-in-one place, new history. But was there also a motivation in terms of needing a new history of dance in the context of, obviously, this year we've had uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and it's been very aware in the in our consciousness that our history in general has been very much told from one perspective. Was this also a consideration with the book that it needed, we needed a broader uh, view of dance history and dance as an art form? It was for sure. Um, we planned this book, so the, the structure of the book was um, formulated uh, three years ago. So even in that time, like even in the three years that happened, Perhaps if I was doing it all over again from the beginning, I might tweak some details uh, based on what we have research and how the public discourse has evolved in the meantime. So you want to have a book that is up to date enough 
that it can at least provide some material about this. So you have you have the issue of, of racial representation, but also just the research that has been done in terms of gender bias in the dance field in the past 20 to 30 years is enormous compared to what you were working with if you were thinking about this um, again, like a quarter of a century ago. Um, so in that sense, it was necessary in almost every aspect of working on this book and almost every time period as well to try and bring that new scholarship into a concise introduction um, just so it's it's out there and you don't need to have specialist knowledge of who is working on this to have access to that. I think that's very important for dense, for dense audiences as well to have that. Are there many artists in the book um, that you've included that you think have previously been overlooked and deserve greater recognition? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, in the later chapters of the book, we have uh, roughly four chapters um, covering um, the turn of the 21st century and the first two decades of the 21st century. And so, of course, in that sense, uh, we're, we're writing about artists that have not yet perhaps had time to be, to be overlooked. Uh, but thinking uh, about other chapters, um, yes, for sure. I think for a long time we thought of dance history, or at least the way dance history was told, uh, was through, say, the great works and the great men, often men, who made those works. Um, and that's not a very useful way to, to think about it in the sense that um, what is considered a masterpiece changes um, from even decade to decade or from century to century. And also he is shaped by how the repertoire is maintained over a long period of time. So the fact that we have, for instance, the Petit Pas repertoire from the 19th century, but almost no other work from any other choreographer, save uh, for Auguste Bournonville um, in ca the case of Danish ballet, uh, that shapes how we tell that story because we don't have access to the rest of the of the material that was being created at the time and that happens even in the in the 20th century so for instance it, it we worked very closely with a dance historian a french dance historian called Hélène Marquier um, on the chapter about um, the early 20th century in France essentially before the arrival of the ballet russe because for a very long time the narrative about um, that short period of time uh, was that nothing was happening in France then um, and that essentially the Belarus swooped in and that everything got better all at once. <laughs> uh, that dance was in decline beforehand. Um, and that's actually Hélène Marquier uh, went into the archives uh, of many many theatres and companies around France and found that actually the um, profession of choreographer had become wasn't decline was less well considered than it had been in the 19th century and therefore that there were for instance fewer men in that profession there were a lot of but there were a lot of women at the time who were ballet mistresses with companies small big companies who were making works that we just did not keep in the repertoire and based on what she found uh, which includes reviews from the time um memories from people who were there um, and who later wrote about that time period, um, she found that actually a lot of those works were considered quite innovative um, at the time and in, in some in some cases uh, perhaps predated some of the shifts that we think of as ballet russe uh, inspired. 
in the in the dance world and in the ballet world. Um, and a lot of the people driving those changes were women, uh, like women including ballet mistresses like Mariquita and Louise Tichel, who are basically unknown even in France and outside France um, even more so. Um, yet who were major figures um, of dance history and who had been completely overlooked up until that fairly recent research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and was there many people that through doing this research or collaborating with people on the book as well that you learned more about or that you were surprised that you hadn't known much about before you were working on this project? I mean, that time period for sure, although I knew Hélène Marquis's research, uh, but it was wonderful to have it uh, in a chapter that could convey that for anyone reading it, really. Uh, some of the other things that I was fascinating, that I was fascinated, sorry, to discover um, was the research being done about, say, ancient Greece or the ancient Roman Empire, uh, which, quite frankly, I didn't know that much about, uh, aside from perhaps a few words of introduction to to, to dance um, at the time uh, in books here and there. Um, and actually, there are some wonderful scholars working on those time periods. And what's fascinating is that um, it, there was a very lively uh, choreographic scene, if you will, at the time, because dance was part of theatre um, and was considered... Uh, a major part of the productions that you were putting on on stage uh, in Greece, especially in ancient Greece, especially. Um, what's fascinating to me is that this predates Christianity, um, and Christianity changed a lot of things, um, a lot of the the narrative around dance because the church brought also a moral consideration uh, into play as to whether dance should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed and whether it was bad for women and so on and and, and so on and so forth. Um, so a lot of the history uh, that comes from after the Middle Ages or the Middle Ages onwards is shaped by Christian, uh, a Christian perspective on dance. Whereas in the Roman Empire and in ancient Greece, uh, innovation was did not follow the same rules as what we think of as, as innovation. So for instance, there was um, a genre that was developed in the ancient Roman Empire uh, in the first century before Christ, which is called pentomime. And pentomime is something that we think we know because of later um, examples of pantomime and what it became in the 18th century, in the 19th century, and so on. And actually, it was already a genre in itself at, in, in Rome, um, with its own rules, uh, with masks, and with a relationship with music that seemed very uh, important and is really well explored now by research, by researchers. Maybe you could talk a little bit as well about the people you collaborated with. Remember you mentioned that William Forsyth wrote the introduction um, and there's many other high profile contributors as well, including Alistair McCauley. Can you tell me a little bit about how these people were selected and the things that they've contributed? Yes, of course. So, so 27 scholars and, and writers in total contributed to the book from seven different countries. Um, many of them wrote chapter wrote their chapters in English and I translated them into French uh, because I felt it was important to have um, international perspectives on dance research and not just to stay within what is happening in France. Um, there is also one chapter uh, who was translated from German uh, by Gerald Sigmund. Uh, and we had contributors from Denmark, from Russia. That, that was very, very important to me because perhaps because I write in English and I've always thought of dance 
as something that is understood differently in in different cultural contexts. And I think that contributes uh, to how we see dance history and to how dance history is shaped. So bringing those perspectives into a book like this was a way also of highlighting the research that is being done elsewhere and perhaps how differently sometimes um, even the work of specific choreographers is seen um, depending on the country. And it was a wonderful process. I think many people realized quite quickly um, how valuable a project like this could be. Um, so people came on board very quickly. I was I was surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been. I, I, people are very busy. <laughs> so you think perhaps that not everyone will be available to work on this. And actually, most of the people that we asked said yes straight away and could see the intention behind it and how useful it could be to both students and a gen the general public. Um, and the process of, of working of working on the book was you learn so much because you work with very, very different personalities. Um, it was also the first time that I really worked as an editor for a long stretch of time, which I really enjoyed. Um, it's trying to figure out where someone is coming from and how you can best phrase that for a French reader. Um, that that was that was a question in some cases because um, of course um, say American writers or Russian writers um, think of history or write history differently than we do here in France. Um, in the case of, of Alistair Macaulay, we did we asked him to contribute a, a chapter about. Uh, an essay about the style of Petipa, which seemed very important to me because um, a wonderful Russian scholar um, named Sergei Konaev contributed a chapter about more of the biography of uh, Marius Petipa and what we know, what we've discovered also fairly recently in, in some cases about his life and his relationship with the imperial theaters in Russia. But I felt that we needed um, someone to bring to bring a little more about the style of how, what we can say about the style of Petipa, which is a bit of a mystery, to be honest. Like we have the sense that we know the repertoire, that we know the classical repertoire and that we know what it what it's about and how it's structured. And actually, because it's been shaped over decades and decades by new productions, different aesthetics, um, tweaks here and there, new scenes. Actually, I don't think we have such a great sense of what Petipa himself was about um, or how we can or how we can phrase that. Um, and I knew Alistair had written quite extensively about that for the New York Times as a critic and had followed the work of people like Alexei Repmansky and Duke Fallington, who have been uh, reconstructing works by Petipa based on notation, based on period notations. And that felt very new to me and very important to have in a book like this because we don't really have um, a, a book in French that is the authority, say, or like the main resource on Marius Petipa, who was French. So that felt very that, that felt very important. Just to give you one little example of how of how that, that came about. So you mentioned at the beginning of that question as well the, the international perspective when you were inviting people. Is there a hope to have this book translated into different languages eventually? I ask from a very selfish point of view because I would love to, to read it. I would I would love to and I, I hope it will be translated. Um, I'm afraid there's no there's no 
plans that I can that I can mention as of now. Uh, but I would be delighted if that happened because I've been told by some people that there isn't really an, an equivalent in English to what we try to do with the with this book. Although there are many wonderful introductions to dance in English, but perhaps not one as wide ranging in terms of bringing in recent work, recent scholarly work from prehistoric times to the present. Um, I do think that if it were to be translated into English, um, personally, I would love if we could tweak it a little as well, because um, I think a British or American perspective might need um, a little more in some chapters. Some chapters are perhaps quite focused on France because we had French scholars working on them and writing them. Um, so what my dream would be to say, have it translated, but with editorial input, so we can actually try and see what would be best suited to an English speaking audience. And also I would love for it to be translated in other languages. I, I do hope it, it happens and nothing would thrill me more. <laughs> well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for that one then. And then I have one last question. I was wondering if you could speak to any female dance practitioner from history, who would it be and why? I think probably a choreographer that I don't know if you if you've heard of her, a French choreographer whose name is Janine Charat. She was from the same generation as Roland Petit uh, and Maurice Béjart. Um, and she was known as this prodigy from a very, very young age. She starred in a in a film called The Dying Swan when she was 12 uh, and still a, a student at the Paris Opera Ballet School. Um, and then she went on to be identified as a promising choreographer from the young, the youngest age, really. Um, she was making works uh, after the war around late 1940s and early 1950s within the same context as Roland Petit, uh, with the same company. Uh, in some cases, she worked for his company. She had her own company also at one point. Um, and it feels like she was this major talent on the French dance scene that we've nearly forgotten at this point because none of her, of her works are still in the repertoire in any French company. No one is dancing her works. Um, I think it's a tragedy. Uh, she seemed hugely talented and some of her works from what I've read and from what I, from what the historian Florence Poudru uh, writes in, in the book, uh, some of her works touched on, on subject, subject matters like madness, mental illness, um, same-sex relationships as well, which is quite unusual perhaps for the, for the time. Um, you see photos of her work and you think, how could we have lost this? How, how come no one stood up and said, why don't we keep at least some of her works in the repertoire of the Paris Opera or at the very least in, in the school, uh, which has its, its own repertoire and performs works every year as a graduation performance. Um, I, would love to, I would love to have a chance to have a chat with her and sit down and just to ask her about her work. Also about the context, which is she worked with many wonderful artists, but just what she did, what it was like to be a choreographer at the time, and has she structured her work, um, how she thought of the classical technique, uh, that would be absolutely fascinating. And I do wish some, perhaps someone someday will try to recreate one of her works. That's, I'm still holding out hope. We'll see. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Laura. That was amazing to talk to you about all those things. And thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you, Emily, for asking me. I hope you all enjoyed the first episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the wonderful Laura Capel. 
If you're a French speaker and interested in reading Laura's book, I've placed a link to it in the show notes. Or, if you'd like to read some of Laura's fantastic criticism and interviews, head over to the New York Times, The Guardian or The Financial Times for regular articles. If you've enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review, follow us on Instagram or sign up to our newsletter on our website, www.terpsichord-mag.com. Thank you so much again for listening to the Terpsichord podcast with me, Emily May.